hello. You made it to Friday, if it's Friday when you're listening to this. Today, I am talking with Tressie McMillan Cottom, PhD, who is a sociology professor at Virginia Commonwealth University, and Kelly Baker, PhD, who studies racist politics, sexism in the academy, white supremacy, and zombies. Both women are writers, both are major fans of the paranormal romance genre. They snuck paranormal romances to read during grad school, they hid their love of romance, and they dealt with being shunned and shamed for loving the genre. Does that sound familiar to you? We have a lot to talk about in this interview, and I really enjoyed our conversation. We talk about how reading fills in the gaps in knowledge about culture and history, how romance and genre fiction broaden their understanding of worlds outside their own, their take on anyone who can or tries to remove the politics from anything, including historical romance, the idea that history can somehow not be political, the ways that romance, specifically paranormal and fantasy romance, interrogates race, society, gender, and colonialism, and the ways in which it does not, the politics of escape fantasy for different romance genres, and the politics of who is permitted to get angry in a written world. Plus, we take a hilarious, deep, critical dive into Dr. Cottom's love of Hallmark movies and how they are talked about as, quote, unpolitical as well. She talks after some prodding about how she reads Hallmark films. Here's a hint. They are alarmingly similar to a very specific romance genre, and it is not contemporary. Get ready to have your mind blown and also to laugh a lot, too. This podcast is brought to you by Once a Scoundrel by Mary Jo Putney. From Mary Jo Putney, one of the most acclaimed writers of historical romance, comes another beautifully crafted, deeply emotional, impeccably researched novel with a fun dash of adventure, this time set on the high seas. Spanning from Algiers to England, follow the journey of a disgraced former English Navy captain turned privateer as he attempts to rescue Lady Aurora Lawrence, who was kidnapped by pirates. Together, they undertake a dangerous mission through troubled waters and encounter another kind of danger as attraction burns hot within the close confines of his ship. But even if they endure the perils of the sea and enemy lands, can their love survive a return to England, where the distance between a disgraced captain and an earl's daughter is wider than the ocean? Once a Scoundrel by New York Times bestselling and Rita award-winning author Mary Jo Putney is on sale now wherever books are sold and at kensingtonbooks.com. Today's podcast transcript is sponsored by Last Night with the Earl by Kelly Bowen, brought to life by the brilliant narrator Ashford McNabb. If you like Tessa Dare and Sarah McLean, feminism and heroines that don't wilt under the slightest bit of pressure, you will enjoy this historical romance. Eli Dawes, the Earl of Rivers, reluctantly returns to England to find his country home in Dover taken over by a finishing school for girls. Severely wounded in the Battle of Waterloo, his hopes of maintaining a low profile are thwarted when he literally bumps into Rose Hayward, a old friend who coincidentally is now the art teacher at the school. Rose, who has faced her own challenges while Eli has been away, is the only person to force him to see certain truths about himself and his place in the world, and unexpectedly, he does the same for her. And let us not forget, there is some serious steamy sex. Last Night with the Earl by Kelly Bowen is on sale now wherever books are sold. You can find out more at kellybowen.net and you can find out about other audiobook romances or oral romances at hashetaudio.com. 
please stay tuned to the end of this podcast as I have an audiobook sample of this title for you to enjoy. It'll be after the outro at the very end after the terrible joke. And then after the part where I laugh at myself because the jokes make me laugh. So at the end of the episode, I have a special sample of Last Night with the Earl by Kelly Bowen performed by Ashford McNabb. This podcast, as you probably know, has a Patreon. And if you have supported the show with a monthly pledge, thank you very, very much. You are helping me ensure that each episode is transcribed. You keep the show going every week and you make sure every episode is available to everyone, which is important to me and many readers and listeners as well. If you'd like to join the Patreon community, it would be awesome. Have a look at patreon.com slash smartbitches. Monthly pledges start at a dollar a month and every pledge makes a deeply appreciated difference. I also want to thank some of the Patreon folks personally. So to Malia, Karen, Deandra, Brianna, and Charity, thank you so much for being part of the Patreon community. Are there other ways to support the podcast? Of course. I bet you know what they are. Leave a review. Listen. Tell a friend. Whatever it is that you're doing, thank you for letting me hang out in your eardrums each week. And speaking of Patreon, I have compliments, which is fun. To Rika, Every day, you grow toward being your authentic, excellent self, and that makes every day a very good day for the world. And to Amy Kay, in an alternate universe, there is an entire field of study devoted to examining your kindness, your laugh, and your skill with your favorite recipe. If you would like a handcrafted compliment, have a look at patreon.com slash smartbitches. It is one of the rewards for pledge levels, and there are some other nifty rewards too. Thank you for having a look. Thank you for being part of the Patreon. And thank you for hanging out with me. The music you're listening to was provided by Sassy Outwater. I will have information at the end of the show as to who this is. I will also have a terrible joke. This one's really quite bad. I love it a lot. And I will have a preview of what's coming up on Smart Bitches this coming week. And as always, I have links to the books that we talk about and links to some of the things that we reference in our conversation. But now, on with the podcast. So I am Kelly Baker. I am a religion PhD and writer and primarily essayist. And I work on a whole bunch of things, including white supremacist and racist politics and sexism in the academy and also zombies. And I may, I know, I was like, when is she going to get to the zombies? I know, and zombies, I'll just throw it in. And then I also um, am a huge paranormal romance, urban fantasy reader. Mm -hmm. So that's what I do in my spare time. Awesome. Yeah. All right. I am Tressie McMillan Cottom, and it is all three names to be obnoxious. And let's see, I am a sociology professor in Virginia. Um, I guess I can say like Virginia Commonwealth University. I mean, I don't know if people want to come and see me there or something, but there you go. Got it. And um, I'm also a writer, identify strongly as a writer and write about all kinds of stuff too. I'm kind of like Kelly, except for the um, zombies part. (laughs) (laughs) Do not write about the zombies. Um, uh, Let's see, but I I grew up reading romance. So like, you know, I'm the old school classic. I mean, you know, from Beverly Jenkins to um, modern contemporary, but what got me through graduate school and my transition to academia was absolutely, uh, paranormal. I love that so much. This is going to be so much fun. 
Well, I love it too, because I was thinking like, these are the books that I would sneak in graduate school, right? Because it was totally yeah. not cool, exactly. totally not cool yep. um, to be caught with a book with a werewolf on the cover. But I was like, I'm reading these because I can't, I can't yep. even do this. Oh, well, right? it's not, I finally bought a Kindle, right? So oh. the only reason why I moved to eBooks was exactly that. So people couldn't see what I was reading. I cannot mm-hmm. tell you how often I was actually reading like Cressley Cole or Sarah McCarthy or something um in the library or on campus and around like you know super smart people who would have shunned me oh exactly if I'd had the physical book in my hands (laughs) well I was thinking about it the other day like I happened to be in some random public place I think waiting on a meeting and I was like you can't tell that I'm reading Nalini Singh Mm -hmm. but it's amazing and I am right like and I'm gonna sip my coffee and I'm just gonna continue to Mm -hmm. read these books I have said many times that I haven't met many romance readers who are actively shamed, feeling and carrying shame for what they read, but they've been told so often that they need to be ashamed, that there's this sort of third level of shame, like, well, I should be ashamed. I'm going to get crap for it, but I actually love this and I'm having a really good time. The more more that we're told we ought to be ashamed of what we're reading, but the more, that's just the worst kind of shame to carry around. It's so great. Yeah. So I say, I have said like many, many, many times that a lot of my gaps in sort of like world knowledge and certainly knowledge about other cultures comes from reading Um, and not reading uh, books that were about, you know, necessarily about the culture. So for example, almost everything that I can remember knowing as a young person about um, England um, and and history of England came from Regency romance novels. Now, admittedly may not have been the best historical knowledge, but it was amazing for like, it, it was, it's actually perfectly suitable for broad strokes, right? Like uh-huh. I, thought, I got a sense of what the social hierarchy was. So when later you're a young adult and you're reading, you know, the real quote unquote real literature, I understood, right? right. Why a Mary Shelley would have happened, right? I understood why those conversations were, they would, which I wouldn't have understood as a young black woman in the South. I wouldn't have had a personal experience with that. I wouldn't have understood why this mattered, why gender or femininity was operating in this way. I got that from romance. There's no shame in how you come to learn about the world, right? I tell my friends all of the time, you don't know, you don't even want to begin to guess how I know some of the things that I know. Very inappropriate reading material, that's how. (laughs) But I think it's such an interesting point, too, because I grew up in, like, rural Florida, you know, working class, like, Mm -hmm. had a library card. And, like, the reason I became a history nerd was because of like what we would now call young adult novels, mm-hmm. right? About like the prairie and Western frontier. And yeah. um, granted that their portrayals of native peoples were really, really a problem. But it's one of those where that's like where you kind of like realize that the world is more expansive. And it's mm-hmm. always for me been through like these genre novels, like romance yeah. novels, right? Where I'm like, oh, this is what it looks like to live in a city, mm-hmm. right? Not exactly. in this town where you can routinely see cows, right? Yep. Um, so, but it, it is that kind of interesting piece of that. And, and now that I have a kid who is an avid reader, it's so interesting for me to hear like what she learns about mm-hmm. the world, right? From books mm-hmm. that people would think are not the like great, right? But right. we don't care in our house. We read whatever. Yeah. I learned so much American history through the Sunfire novels. Oh. I don't know if you guys are of an age to have encountered those. I'm I'm 43, so these yeah. would have been when I was in middle school. Yeah. I remember them. I remember the covers very vividly. Mm-hmm. So each each one was a woman's first name. Mm-hmm. 
Okay. Each book took place during a major historical event, often in the United States. But I remember I read about the Triangle Shirtwaist Fire. I read about the foundation of Hollywood. I read about the Johnstown Flood. And I grew up in Pittsburgh. My knowledge of the Johnstown Flood was not very thorough. But when I read that book and then later had had a whole history unit on it, I was like top of the class. Yes. I read this romance novel that took place about a young woman who was a journalist. And then the Johnstown Flood ha- happened. Mm-hmm. When you have history told in the context of a woman's story and you're a young woman, that's incredibly powerful. Now, of course, Sunfire, book, Sunfire books were also um, a layer cake of problems in terms of minorities and marginalized people. Mm-hmm. But I look at how I learned about history and I'm like, how How do you, are we still putting down what young women read? Yeah. Really? We're doing yeah. that? Yeah. 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 No, I tell my friends all, you know, uh, you know, all of the self-conscious middle class of being like an academic is very interesting and weird. And so they'll be a little obsessed by, oh, my son only reads, you know, um, comic books. And I go, I don't care what he reads. I, I, I will tell them flat out. I was like, I don't I do not care. Give him anything. If he needs yeah. something with like boobs on it, I don't care if they're just let people read. Um, right. And I'm like, yeah, I'm constantly trying to free my friends from that sort of uh, self-conscious anxiety they have about like what their kids are reading. Well, and it's funny to me because like, like I said, in our house, we just don't care. Mm-hmm. Right. Where it's one of those things where we're like books, open worlds, like go for it. Mm-hmm. And so it's interesting because I have a reader who's more advanced than her age. Mm-hmm. And so people are like, you're letting her read yeah. these things. Yeah. And I'm like, yeah. Like mm-hmm. my mom let me read Dean Koontz, I think, because she wasn't paying attention yes. when I was like, 11, right? Like, like looking back now, I was like, man, mom, like you phoned it in yes. reading material. Yes. But, um, you know, I'm like Stephen King, Dean Koontz. And these are like not 11 year old reading material. Oh, yeah. But I'm kind of like, but these were great storytelling and, mm-hmm. and horror has always been a thing that I'm really interested in and I use in my own writing. But it is that really funny piece where I'm just like, we don't care. Read comic books, read graphic mm-hmm. novels, right? Mm-hmm. Read all of these series that people are like, I'm not sure about. I'm like, because this is what we do, yeah. right? And we learn how to filter that information. Um, but it is really funny to see the people that are like, oh, I'm aghast that my nine-year-old is reading this. And I'm like, why do you care? I'm like, your nine-year-old is reading. Like, yeah. hello, like, like stop the sentence there. Exactly. This is great. So this entire conversation that we're having started because of some dingle hopper on mm-hmm. Twitter. Unfortunately, <laughs> because I am an idiot, I did not screen cap what the dingle hopper said. And the dingle hopper has since deleted his tweet. Yes. I remember what they said. I don't remember yeah. who they said it to. Do you remember Kelly? It's an author. I do. Yeah. It was to an author. I mean, it's one of these things that happens tons, right? So, um, but the author clearly writes, historical romance. I remember that much. And it said something to the effect of like, I don't know, you know, get out and vote. Who knows? Right. But it was just one right. of these sort of, it was not even a contentious one. It was a generic, you know, you know, November's coming. Are you ready to vote sort of thing? Um, and the person said, I don't follow you for your political opinions. And this is why I miss and why I like historical. That's what it was. This is why I like yeah. historical romance because it doesn't have all this politics in it. That's right, what yes. it was. Yes. And we all, I mean, you know, it's ridiculous. <laughs> it's like, you know, first of all, can you define all of your terms, right? So first of all, you're calling it a historical romance. This is your preferred genre. And no, maybe the person who said it was the writer. Actually, I, I can't now remember if it was the writer or the reader who said this, 
But I thought, so you were saying the genre is historical romance and you think history is apolitical. Yeah, right. That's always a good sign. Right. So first of all, I know which history romances you're reading, first of all. Um, And then second, I also know how you're choosing to read them, right? Because as we were just saying, when once we understood the history that we were getting from all this quote unquote inappropriate content we were reading as children, um, because my Mm -hmm. mom also totally phoned it in, um, we... um, immediately understood that those things had a context and context is politics. Context is history. That's what that means. Um, but it was that, you know, that thing about that there are safe subgenres of right. romance, which I find fascinating where you don't have to think about things like, um, you know, race and class and gender. And what's hilarious is the places that they think are safest are the ones that are most steeped in oh, right. those right. ideas. The That's most, right. yes. Like literally every, every wealthy person at that time, they had some dealing in the sugar trade, which was the most. Exactly. I was like, the reason why you're, the the reason why the class structure was so rigid and why your heroine is resisting um, marriage or the Duke or whatever (laughs) is because of the proximity to the money that was being made from colonialism. Uh, Right. Right. That is the entire gender structure at the time. The thing that you think is so swoon worthy, the Dukes, the Earls, Right. Um, that's literally all that meant. Well, and it's interesting too, to me about the way in which certain genres they like assume are not political. Mm -hmm. Right. So like I read urban fantasy because it has sexy werewolves, right. It's the line of thinking and it's not really thinking about like gender class or race. And I'm like, are you not reading the same books that I'm reading? Cause they're doing kind of interesting work here to think about categories of the human and to think about how gender works and Mm -hmm. to think about categories like race and often strangely essentialist kind of ways. Mm -hmm. But, but I'm like, there's a lot of work that these books are doing Mm -hmm. that you think is just like steamy vampire sex, I guess. But it's like, no, no, no. Like they're doing sort of neat work here. Mm -hmm. Are you not paying attention or have you just sort of decided that this is somehow apolitical, like you said, right? Like, it's not politics when we have different. So I have this other um, addiction that, I, you know, it's not a secret. I just, you know, I don't have it on a T-shirt is all I'm saying. But I also have a, um, a Hallmark movie problem. Yeah, no, I'm in deep. I'm in deep. Um, and in that I've seen them all and I'm thinking about a ranking system. Like I'm in <laughs> deep. And so I think about people who say that kind of thing, very, very similar to the way I think about Hallmark movies, right? So I think the reason why Hallmark has become one of the most popular, you know, financially successful cable networks is precisely because people think of it, many people anyway, think of it as like the safe space in television, right? It's the the place to retreat where none of that stuff exists, just like none of it apparently exists in historical romance for tons of readers. I, of course, read... Hallmark movies completely differently and enjoy something very different than I think the majority audience does. So what do you read so, them for? I'm sorry, Sarah. No, but now I'm like, I'm, I'm caught here. I'm, I'm somebody delivers lectures for her job and I'm not naming names. <laughs> I was done with the lecture though. I was done. That was it. Please t- talk about this. Cause I'm like, uh, my 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 elbows are on my desk and my chin. I know. I'm like I'm gonna take notes now and figure out how I need to watch the Hallmark movie. Are you Doctor McMillan Cottom or Doctor Cottom? Uh, Doctor Cottom is fine. Yeah. 
in print, I do the whole name, but like nobody can walk around saying that whole mouthful. It's ridiculous. Yeah. Do people call you Dr. TMC? Uh, no, you know, most of my <laughs> students go with, they say Dr. Tressy, but it very quickly transitions to like some version of Dr. Cottom, Dr. Tressy, Tressy, mm-hmm. as we become more familiar. Yeah. Well, should you undertake a, a career change in the music industry, Dr. TMC is an excellent stage. I have actually been told that. Um, and here's what, here's our main problem. I have absolutely no musical ability, but that has Aww. never stopped anyone else. And so it is still a possibility. You can make it work. You can make it work. I have faith in you that you, can, you, you can make this career change. Right? Is that it? All you need is gumption and abs is what I've been told. Yeah. So. Yeah. Oh my gosh. But I don't want to work for the abs, exactly. right? Like that's always what I think is like, oh man, like, do I actually want to have to spend three hours in a gym a day? And I'm like, that sounds terrible. Like, why would you do this to yourself? I have no desire to put in that kind of investment either. So I think that's why Dr. TMC is going to be a struggle, but we'll see. We'll see. So how are you reading Hallmark movies when you're watching them? Yeah, no, I'm reading them absolutely as this sort of like, radical form of identity politics. <laughs> I see that. And also sweater politics, oh, yeah, but it's yeah, a whole yeah. other politics. Which, depending on the sweater, is an identity. Let's be real. When you see somebody in one of those things, you kind of know what you're working with. The Christmas sweater, mm-hmm. you know? Um, yeah. So, yeah. Yeah, now, I think the, so, like, the fascination with Christmas, I think Christmas, of course, just the stand-in for religion, but they don't want to, mm-hmm. like, you know, annoy anybody uh, by being religiously specific and choosing a sort of denomination or anything. So you just use Christmas as the stand-in. Santa Claus is the stand-in for Jesus. Um, and then once you take okay. all of that away, it is just a Regency romance novel in a contemporary uh-huh. setting, right? Oh, my stars. Yes, yeah, it's dealing with all the same stuff, right? Think of how often the woman, so one of the things I love to do, this is what I mean by, like, I read it. I do sort of a punk reading of it is I'm like, okay, what's this woman's job? And then I do like the actual, like how much she would need to afford the apartment they put her in. Exactly. And then, like I do that whole thing. Right. And, but I also keep a list of, like the jobs. And so the women, the acceptable jobs for the one, for a woman in a Hallmark movie, for her to be a empathetic character are things like cup shape, cupcake shape shop owner. Right. Oh my gosh. Bookstore. <laughs> My favorite one lately is blogger, which I. Uh, <laughs> oh, oh, oh yes, because we make so much money on writing on the internet. Blogging, right? They've got these jobs. Well, of course, the jobs are the kind that will never compete for the guy in the small town who she had ever. Oh sure. Yeah. Has to fall in love, with. and it has to be a job that's going to be flexible because inevitably she's got to leave it to be with him. Oh, exactly. Right. Because it's full-time work. That's right. Um, right. That's yeah. why blogging is great. She can do it in the kitchen. And oh, yeah. oh. <laughs> no, sorry. And so it's, you know, so it's fascinating. Now, if she's not going to be empathetic, they do have women who are like marketing executives and, you know, et cetera, but she's not sympathetic, right? She's the one right. going to have to get amnesia to rediscover oh. her true self really wants to sell Christmas trees. 
Oh, man. When the change of worldview has happened to those characters. They were a lot of floaty chiffon hippie yes, fabrics. Yes, they do, don't they? Yeah. Their hair is down. It's no longer in like the power right. bun. That's right? when, it's, um, when she's been transformed. And I love them. So increasingly, this is their take on modernity though, right? So they're like, okay, some things have clearly happened though. Women are getting paychecks, right? So we got to make some adjustments. And their adjustments are things like they let her have fancy shoes, Women in the movie be very particular that yes, she may move to the Christmas farm, but she's not going to give up her high heels. Oh man, they're red bottoms, they're bloody shoes. That's right, they these bloody yeah. shoes in Christmas Town, USA. <laughs> I, you know, this is funny to me because I think part of the reason I like the paranormal romance slash urban fantasy is that like usually these are women who are like mercenaries. Oh, yeah. Right. Like, so, so they're not blogging and they're not cupcake show folders. No. I can't even get it out, but you know, they're like, I'm a mercenary and now I got to deal with vampires. Right. Or exactly. I'm some fancy kind of police officer, right. Yep. In this new world where we have these different um, monsters that we have to deal with. Mm-hmm. And so part of me is like, yeah, I kind of could get behind being a mercenary. Right. Like it's a different yeah. fantasy for me where I'm like, yeah, mm-hmm. I already wear motorcycle boots. Uh, you know, like I already have the like aesthetic down. This is a new day. It's a new day. If you got the motorcycle boots, then you're a mercenary. I know. I should just, I should just lean into I it. Do. I do. I think you should. <laughs> My kids already give me grief over this where they're just like, really, you're going to wear that? And I'm like, uh-huh, I am. I'm a grown up, right? Like you I know, get to make these choices. It's going to yeah. be funny to have, it must be weird though to be a kid with a cool mom. Oh God. You know, my daughter acts like it's the worst thing in the world, yeah. right? Like, because, and, and it's one of the things too, where I'm like, I'm not trying to be cool. And she's like, yeah, I know. But my friends are like, your mom has tattoos yeah. and she has piercing. Yeah. And like, she has a PhD, right? Because that's the other kind of piece of this, uh-huh. right? It's like, you know, your mom is not a stay-at-home mom. Right. And so I think every once in a while, she's just like, mm-hmm. can't you just look like suburbia? You know, yeah. like, couldn't you just for a day put on the cardigan? Yeah, because how is she? How is she gonna rebel against you? I don't know. I think I'm afraid that she's gonna like put on the cardigan and uh-huh. decide that she's a wasp, right? Like that's kind of what I'm afraid is gonna happen. Yeah, um, a lot of family yeah. ties. She's gonna be Alex P. Keaton. Yeah, that's <laughs> right. Family ties. Yeah. yeah. Oh no, I hope not. Yeah, but it is a really funny, like mm-hmm. the the kind of tension there where she's trying to figure out, like, oh, this yeah. is what my mom looks like whoa it's right and it is kind of like it I think it's one thing for you to have sort of like the begrudging admiration of your mom which we kind of all have during our preteen years uh-huh. we don't admit to it but we got a little right it's why we steal their stuff it's why that you know but yeah. it's something when your friends like your mom yeah. <laughs> I admit yeah. I mean, it must be this that one that's the thing where it's like no yeah. right um, yeah so if I became a mercenary she would be like, it would be over, yeah. right? It would be the yeah. end. Like she would just be on my floor and like, mm-hmm. woe is me. Yeah. Like, you know, someone from the Victorian romances, actually. Yeah, mm-hmm. exactly like that. Mm-hmm. We also had a Twitter conversation about the origin stories of vampires and fantasy. And then you were both like, oh my gosh, we need to talk about what to read in the fantasy oh. romance genre. Then we yeah. did a podcast and then y'all read so very many books. Mm-hmm. So can you tell me what you love about f- fantasy romance and are you reading them in a, in a critical way, the way Dr. Cottom, you're looking at Hallmark movies. I mean, are you reading them and interrogating them while you read them? Like that's my default setting. So I don't know how to do that any other way, but yeah. 
tell me about your fantasy romance reading and what you love. So I think my first, which, I mean, this is, gosh, this is many years ago, totally by accident. So this is the thing you do lose. So you know how you used to stumble on books beside books mm-hmm. at the store? Yep. So I think it, if, if I remember correctly, my first introduction to fantasy, like romance was mostly through fantasy erotica. And it was like the shifter shifting thing, right? It was because it was a book next yep. to another book in the bookstore. And it was absolutely, oh gosh, what is her name? The, um, the pride people. And there was a secret organization trying to get them to work with us that which granted, this is not narrowing it down. I know. Okay. Um, I know. I was like, that's like 30 books. Oh, Laura Lee, Laura Lee. There you go. Oh, yes. Um, Oh, oh, yes. Go ahead. I'm with you. Thank you. So that was the very first. And I thought, oh, okay. One, I remember initially reading the opening and thinking, what the heck? This is so strange. But what I ended up liking was the world building, right? So what I think mm-hmm. I got into so that, you know, where so many of the assumptions of the world has sort of changed, but in a way that still felt really familiar. Now, of course, you know, many years later, because that was like before grad school and before life, you know, life and all that. Many years later, I think it's pretty clear to me that one of the reasons why this sort of, that sort of um, uh, world building appeals to me is because I do think when you build a world, you do have to grapple with ways like how are you going to deal with the fact that people are different from each other, right? Right. So basically the shifter novels are really about race. I think in the way that the vampire novels often are, they are like X-Men, like the X-Men are, right? It's a stand in for things like race and ethnicity and religious differences and et cetera. But when you do historical novels, it's really easy to rely on history who's already done all of that whitewashing for you. Uh When you build a world from scratch though, you have to be deliberate about, oh, there have to be different kinds of people. What am I going to make that difference? Is it going to be how they look or is it going to be different magical powers, right? Mm -hmm. Is it going to be a different race of people? And if so, what comes with that? I think that people, I I suspect that people who write those kind of world building novels are just probably those types of thinkers. And because that's the kind of thinker I am, I'm super attracted to it because I want to see what choices did you make about like, how does money work in this real world? I love the ones that get into that. Like, you know, some of them are, you know, super rich or money has stopped meaning anything. And instead they trade credits or something like that. Like, but it's a real practical thing you have to deal with. (laughs) And it's like, oh, yeah. How are people going to build their spaceships? Right. Like, um, and when you get into that kind of world building, I'm just, I think it's super fascinating because then I think the characters are, you know, we know something about the characters in a different kind of way than we do when they're like setting, set, have a historic setting. No, that's really fascinating because I was thinking about, so Nalini Singh is my favorite, mm-hmm. hands down favorite. Um, and I love her, um, side changeling series because there are three races, mm-hmm. right? There are humans. There are Psy who have these, I'm really generalizing, but these kind of psychic powers and this psychic network they're collected to. And then there are all the like shifter populations, right? The changelings. And one of the things she does such a great job of is like the reason that one shifter group has money is because they've discovered they're really good at construction, right? (laughs) And, you know, like the reason, you know, that the Psy group has money is because they have this one person that has this ability of foresight and can see like, the stock markets, right? Mm-hmm. And so it's like this kind of interesting way and they're all ultra rich, right? Like right. all of them, of course. Um, and I don't know how an economy works that way, but like whatever. Um, and, and it's 
interesting to me to see the way she tries to like create difference and understand difference. Mm -hmm. Um, And, you know, this kind of interesting thing she does where everybody can hook up with everyone. Mm -hmm. Right. So it's very clearly not a like stay in your own lane about dating Mm -hmm. or romance or sex. Right. Like it's like, we're going to understand this differently. And I kind of wonder how that goes over with readers that are paying attention. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah. Where I'm like, Ooh, this is really fascinating. Right. right? Like this wolf is now dating this sigh. Okay, Mm -hmm. cool. Like, what does that tell us? Right. Um, And so I'm kind of curious about other readers and how they handle that, but it is the like, really practical stuff that she does very well, right? Like, mm-hmm. do they go to college? Right. You know, what does college yeah. look like? Yeah. Um, yeah. You know? yeah. What do their offices look like? You yeah. know, do they go to work every day? Some of them don't, right? There's too much sex. But like, you know, others have like to go to a day job or yeah. something like this. And, and it's that mundane stuff that I think really like sells mm-hmm. it for me. Yeah, me too. Um, and it also, it, it, it's also a part about, dismantling the default wealth fantasy that takes place in a lot of romance. There is absolutely a a default of, well, let's take care of that first major pesky worry and make sure that everyone we're talking about, or at least all the powerful people have lots of money. Mm -hmm. So when you have characters that have to somehow earn a living, that Mm -hmm. wealth isn't the default setting, you get a much richer world, but you also get more more political layers to to decide. That's why I hate the billionaire boys sort of genre, right? I think okay. my least favorite. That's a top three. <laughs> I'm, I'm not a fan of those I, either. That I understand the shorthand that they're trying to depict, but it is not a shorthand that I understand in the way that it's trying to be written. If that makes exactly. sense, exactly. The the wanting to free. I mean, listen the fantasy of being freed from that's really ultimately what magic is about too, right? The, the ability to have some superpower. And in this instance, it's just that money is the superpower. Right. Free you from the constraints of reality is absolutely a type of escapist fantasy that is part of, you know, our culture and we all consume it in different kinds of ways. I just think it's about what kind of escapism you can give yourself over to. And depending on who you are, so for me, escaping into a world that is, and the, the billionaire boy things are also always predominantly very, very white. Yes, so right. Into a white, wealthy world for me is not escape, right? That feels potentially violent. I'm waiting for the other shoe to drop. I'm waiting for the 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 trick or the trap, right? It's just that for me, escaping into that would not be an escape. It primes all of my safety concerns. Mm-hmm. Um, and so my imagination can't let loose in those, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. And I also, I read a couple and I find them fascinating. They probably have more references in them to, you know, the the trope that I think of as being deeply in, um, entwined in Regency romance novels, but like they're fascinated with describing just how white the people in them are. Yes. They're all yes, right. weird <laughs> euphemisms for like pale, pale milk. And I'm like, what the heck is this? Is it like two loaves of bread getting it on? Like, I, <laughs> right. And, but they're like obsessed. It's almost like with the wealth part out of the way, they don't know what else to use to build the character. Yeah. And so they ultra whiteness default to like this weird obsession with <laughs> white everybody. And I just can't do them. Mm-mm. Well, and it's funny to me because I just picked up a, um, it's a Laura Adrian book and oh. it's the first in her midnight breed. Cause I had to do my research of for course, the podcast, of course. right? Yeah. Like my due diligence. Yeah. Um, 
And what's interesting to me about that is that I didn't notice when I read these a few years ago is the obsession with the whiteness of the women that are paired with the vampires, right? Mm -hmm. So like creamy peach skin, right? Mm -hmm. Or creamy golden tinted skin. They really try a lot of different color combinations. So I'm not actually sure (laughs) like what this whiteness looks like, right? Like it's hard for me. Um, Like I'm holding up paint swatches, like gold or peach. I don't don't Um, understand. Like, I don't understand what's happening, but it is like, it's a piece of it. Right. So like every sex scene is like, let's remark for a moment, right. Mm -hmm. On like her delicate whiteness. Right. And, Mm -hmm. and all of this sort of thing. And I'm just like, Oh, like flip, flip, Mm -hmm. you know, like, come on. But it is, it's that kind of the wild way in which that whiteness, Mm -hmm. they have to like step it up. Right. Like it can't just be sort of neutral. It has to be like in your face in some sort of way. And, Mm. Um, but I was just like, man, I'm really tired of them describing this woman, right? Like, I'm just tired. <laughs> One of my favorite things about some of the urban fantasy series that I really enjoy is when you have a mercenary heroine mm-hmm. who is not white. Oh, mm-hmm. yeah. Family that's very inclusive of many different cultures. Yeah. So you have basically a, a, like a triple threat of, of, a, of destruction of established expectations of women. So mm-hmm. she's not and she's getting paid to be violent. Right. Here, entirely here for it. Sign me up. I will yes. join this. If this was a multi-level marketing, if there was like an Amway. Yes, yes. I'm buying the starter kit. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. In, no question. Mm-hmm. No, I do so, too. So I love that. I like a, I love any female character where they allow her to be angry, first of all. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, oh. I want to, that's why I like the um, Shelley Lawrenson one so much. Like the, I love them so much. Yeah, they let her, they let the women rage out, and in fact, embrace it as a characteristic, right? Of the crows, for example, the crows are just in, but, but fantasy. and the honey badgers. Did you read the honey badgers? Yes, I did read the honey badgers. Okay, I've told you, it took me a while. Early Shelley was too much for me. Oh, it's very high camp. It's, but later we definitely worked. And I feel like uh, the Honey Badger just was a bridge between the early stuff that I couldn't get into and the crow stuff that I like, where I think she has found maybe her middle sweet spot. Yep. Yeah. A good craft, but also being a bit ridiculous. I heard her speak this summer at a conference and she never does any events. Mm-hmm. And I was really not cool. Like, I, mm-hmm. I, <laughs> she's amazing. But the thing I love about her books is that for women, rage is always an asset. Oh. And even even in, in paranormal and urban fantasy romances, who has permission and ex- and, and social acceptance to get angry? Yeah. Is- oh, yeah. And this is why I like the stories yeah. about female shifters. Yeah. Because they get to be so angry. Because right? it's the animal in them, right? It's yeah. not the oh. woman in them. It's the animal in yeah. them. And so, yeah, and I mean, it's one of those things where I'm like, oh, man, I would like to flip that table, right? Like, like this, or I would like to grab this guy and Mm -hmm. throw him up against the wall for saying something to me like that. I mean, there's a way in which I'm like, yes, like I am down for -hmm. this, right? And this ability to say that actually that's their strength, right? Like the reason Mm -hmm. that they've gotten higher in the pack. I hate that kind of analogy uh-huh. that they do there, but whatever, uh-huh. you know, okay. it's because they're amazing and yeah. they're not going to back down. And it's like, Oh, mm-hmm. like Roach. where was this fiction when I was a lot younger? Right. Like mm-hmm. my hormonal 13 year old self would have been a much happier person if I had depictions oh, of rage in my world. Yeah. I think the, what I would have loved was the, um, the women embracing competition. 
Yes. Like I'm, I'm, I, let me just admit this here. I am competitive and apparently was born that way. And there are not a whole lot of, especially if you were not an athletic girl and I, right. Alert for everybody here. I was not, um, (laughs) but you You would be shocked to find out that I was also not an athlete. (laughs) The girl who was reading all of the secret age and appropriate books somehow was not on the basketball team. I know it's shocking. Um, (laughs) And so, you know, but you have that, and there is no space really where girls are allowed to compete without it being considered catty. So the, so at least in some of the world building where especially, you know, you have these huge, fantastical, uh, almost global galactic conflicts going on, being competitive is not only acceptable, it's necessary and it's a good thing. They want the competitive woman because, you know, there's a war going on between the beings and, you want the woman who is going to fight and kick somebody's butt, right? And um, and her embracing that competitive and it being a, a desirable trait, which I admit is like the fantasy for me that, you know, the the miracle idea that for some, there is a heterosexual male somewhere in the world for whom that is considered a desirable trait in a right, female right. heterosexual partner right, right. is my version of the wealthy billionaires boys club. It's... <laughs> In your next career, you're going to have to write these books. Yes. If I thought that I could be good at them, I also say that I'm going to write the subversive Hallmark movie, by the way, one of these oh. days. I used to have students do like the, because um, I taught them apocalypses class. And so I would, I would like send them to like oh. urban fantasy and romance a lot of times, mm-hmm. right? Where I was like, just see what happens when the world ends in these kinds of things, right? And like, mm-hmm. How, how gender and race and, and um, class work, right, in these scenarios. And it was always so interesting because my students who are men would be like, I can't believe you're making me read this dribble, mm-hmm. right? Like, I'm not going to gain anything from it. And I was like, okay, sure, all right, you know, you still have to read it, whatever. Mm-hmm. And then they would come back and they would be like, wow, they do really interesting stuff with race. And I was always like, huh. Uh-huh. shocking shocking that you know we can do this but that kind of ability to um interrogate those sources right and see how they work and function um is such an important thing and the ability to say hey, this is what real news looks like yeah. or this is what fake news looks like I mean right. it's a skill right that that we need yeah so I love the idea. first of all I think I would steal all of this by the way seriously so I do have fantasies of one day teaching like you know seriously the sociology of because you can really put anything after that uh-huh um you know there is no media object there's nothing that has not been produced by our economic and social and cultural system and so like how do you turn your lens onto these things etc um, but I also think it is really interesting for how it does what you just described, Kelly, which is it breaks down people's, some students' assumptions about like what's legitimate knowledge. Like the idea right. that you would learn something from somebody different from you is fascinating, right? Because isn't that what the whole thing was supposed to be about? That yes, you can actually learn things from people that you may not value. And <laughs> and here and here is this example. Women write this thing and you actually thought it was cool. Surprise, right? Shock. Yeah. I know. Yeah. You read a whole book from the point of view of the female gaze where yeah. the female character's pleasure is the most paramount established reason for them to be hooking up. I'm really sorry that you had that experience. Right. And you didn't die. Look what and you look, didn't look what die. Look at that. Yeah, it's amazing. So for you both as academics and readers, what is the fantasy romance genre and the, and the urban fantasy genre 
present that might be not something you find in other subgenres of romance? What is why is that your catnip, in other words? Ooh, I know. I was like, huh, lots of things. And I have a buttload of recommendations for you both. Like I've just been writing down titles here. Oh, it's really oh, bad so glad. No, then this is totally probably been my best paid talk thus far this semester. Thank you. <laughs> You know, that's how I ended up on your website and why I think that you, why I think the website is so important and serves such an important role. I I actually talked about you guys in my newsletter a couple of weeks ago, I think, or some newsletter or something, but about what happens when you can have, you know, unlimited content, right? Mm-hmm. It is that what Smart Bitches did is it gave you back the community around romance writing which have become so disaggregated because we can now get it from our Kindles. We don't really have to interact with other romance readers unless we choose to, but that that was so much a part of the system of finding your catnip. Yes. And that is so important um, uh, because no mainstream, like, you know, so what we do for mainstream quote unquote acceptable fiction, right. Is that there are tons of ways for you to find your group of people who will bring to you new content. Right. right. So, I'm going to read the New York Times book review to see what smart people are reading this week who I'm going to need to, you know, talk to somewhere at work. And then I'm going to go over here and read, I want something a little bit more radical. So I'm going to read this magazine, right? There really was not sort of that mass available community building function to help you filter through. And then when, you know, when there are a million eBooks being published every week, what were you supposed to do? Yeah. Like how can you get through them? Right. I mean, it's just the kind of impossible force of, there are just all of these, right? And, yeah. Um, and then Amazon's like, you should try this one. And I'm like, I keep right. telling you no, right? And I'm like, oh, God, no. Amazon. I mean, you talk about the deal we made with that devil, right? Um, mm-hmm. But yeah, so finding my catnip has been about, I think, like finding people who were reading stuff who and like liking the person, like, right? And coming mm-hmm. to like the person. And so now I just kind of read what they're reading. And that works out really well for me. Um Yeah, I don't know. I think, why is it my catnip? Yeah, it is certainly my default. Like, I will... I've got more, you know, um, automatic buy people on my list from that genre than any other. Oh, me too. And I think it's because it does tend to be, I'm, I kind of hate saying this, but I think it's okay considering who I'm speaking to. It's just so smart. Yeah. Yeah, it really is. I mean, this is like, I was thinking about as I was rereading Nalini Singh, which Sarah forced me to do. Mm-hmm. Um that part of why I like her books is that they're just so engaging on so many levels and that I think about them, right? So that I actually finish them and I'm still thinking about the world she's created and what that says about our contemporary moment, right? And that I can pick up another of hers and read this and and think about it even more. And, Mm -hmm. um, And just to see too the way in which in a lot of the paranormal romance that there is a focus on something like consent, right? That like consent is a big deal. Um, That there is a focus on female pleasure and it's a huge part of the narrative. Um, And I also like it too, because a lot of times the heroines are women that have survived like terrible shit, right? And then have created lives and like the trauma is a part of them, but it's not debilitating in a certain way. And for me, like that's super appealing as a reader, right? As a woman who's also been through some shit, right? To say like, oh, look, right? Now she's kicking doors in, right? Mm-hmm. And um, throwing guys up against the wall. But like, we also know this like fully fledged character in a way that um, I think people might not expect from yeah. that genre. But th- they're really three dimensional and really compelling. And you kind of want to 
or at least I do, I want to hang out with them more, right? Which is why I have the automatic buy set up too, where I'm like, yes, Amazon, tell me yep. that this new book is out. And then I'm going to have to find something to do with my children, right? While <laughs> I try to read it as soon as it comes out. Um, yeah. But there's Xbox. <laughs> That's right. That's why we, that, isn't that why they came up with technology? Yeah. Exactly, right? Where I'm like, go find a Kindle, cal- children, right? Like, just do this for me. Yeah. <laughs> now, I'm like Kelly. I love women who have been through things. That, I mean, that may be above all, like if I have like a meta genre, it's Uh that. I was always looking for stories about women who had gone through something. One of the things I love about the Crows series from Shelley Lawrenston and the Honey Badger series is that by reading about these women who have seen some shit, you come out asking yourself, okay, how does this apply to me? Like I finished the crows and I thought, okay, who are my sister crows? Who are the people who are have my back and we'll be like, yes, we should totally kill that guy. Let's go. <laughs> Let's I make that happen. How much they embrace killing somebody. <laughs> yeah. My friends and I have a group chat that disqualifies all of us from public office. And in yep. it, we like one of our standby sayings to each other is, who do we need to kill? Mm-hmm. Not what yep. happened. Not right, like we don't need the backstory. Like you can tell us later what happened. What we yep. just need to know right now is who are we killing? And yep. I, yeah, I love this, right? That there's this default assumption, and that yes, actually, some people, as the crows make clear, do. That is the only solution here. Once you found out yep. what it was, you absolutely could have trusted your sister crow the whole time. You absolutely were yep. going to come to the same conclusion she had come to, right? That that's the beautiful thing. <laughs> Somebody else in the world would hear the same thing, the circumstances that you experience and would draw the same conclusion as you. Absolutely. How much less lonely the world is when you think of it that way. So there's a, a series called the Chicagoland oh, Vampires. I by love Cl- it. Sorry, go ahead. The first book took me a while to get into because there's a lot of like world setup and info dumpage and like there's. There's a lot going on in the first book where I'm, where for the first few chapters, you kind of have to wait for her to leave France and go back okay. to the States, and then it's good. But basically, it's as if you take all of the established world of an urban fantasy um, vampire shift world in Chicago, hyper-located in an accurate Chicago, but then the heroine is a millennial. So she has a completely different way of seeing the world than her parents and her parents' um, colleagues who basically set up that world. Like all of the systems that exist for the vampires and the shifters and everybody to coexist, they set that up. She has to navigate that system and figure mm-hmm. out who she is while also dealing with, you know, bad nefarious problems and mm-hmm. killing and battle and stuff like that. And it is so interesting in the first book to watch her figure out how she's going to be the the only born vampire child. So she's already very well known, but she's going to find her friends and she's going to find her family and she's going to figure out how to live her life. And it was like the most interesting blend of major themes in, a, in an urban fantasy that I had read in a really long time. And it's very, very casually inclusive. So all of the future characters that are introduced are of different cultures and different backgrounds and there's some humans and there's some shifters and it's so hmm, interesting i've already saved it we're talking about yeah, i'm writing this yeah. down and i will yeah. go to the amazon yeah. probably immediately after people are always like are you a fan of these genres right that you're studying and i'm like you know sometimes i am so i really like apocalyptic narratives 
I'm not the biggest fan of zombies. It's just, I think they work as a good case study, but I do read a lot of this like apocalyptic fiction, um, especially genre fiction. Literary fiction is just depressing as hell. Like it's just not worth it. But you know, romance where you're like, oh, at least there's some optimism Mm -hmm. here usually in how this works out. And I love Alyssa Cole's treatment of it. So I actually ended up finding um, or believing this was before sort of like I was following her as an author. um, And you should know that I believe that Alyssa Cole should have... um, all of the money that ABC is left over with now that Shonda Rhimes has gone to Netflix. I think that they should put it uh, in a box and they should send it to Alyssa and they should let her run with all of this world building that she has done. Um, so just going to put that out there because I know this is a very powerful podcast. And so let's just get that done. Um, <laughs> <and> so, <laughs> I remember reading the Off the Grid series and thinking, oh, she's clearly a scientist, right? Then I read the historical narratives and thought, oh, she's yep. clearly a historian. Then, I mean, so the way she gets into, I do believe she does have a science background, by the way, but the way she treats this sort of matter-of-factly is just, um, it's just close enough to reality. And I do tend to like these, right, where, um, you know, it diverges just slightly enough, right? So what brings about the apocalypse is, one, again, something that could clearly happen, but it pulls at the fabric of what you believe. Oh, yeah. What what do we do? Right. When you turn on the faucet and nothing comes out anymore. Like what what's you know, where do you go? And what do you ha- what happens there? And she builds a really nice um, um, family unit in those books mm-hmm. that I think is really interesting, too. Um, and she treats the romance very matter of factly, which I like. Yes, that's definitely true. Okay, do you guys have any books that you want to recommend that you love that you want to tell people? Well, you about? took my big one. I love Alyssa. Um, uh, a new favorite author is actually not doing so much um, urban fantasy, but you want to talk about kick ass heroines who have scars. Actually, quite literally, Adrian Anders has a series about women who have experienced. Um, some sort of visible scarring, right? And have been this trauma. And she does it, I think, in this really wonderful feminist sort of way. Um, and I was at a cookout last year and uh, mentioned the book. And the person sitting next to me is apparently her friend. So she's also writing from up the road in Virginia. So I also think that's super important to know. Um, again, I love uh, all of Alyssa Cole's um, uh, stuff. Um and my favorite series as far as just, you know, waiting incessantly for the, the next Crows book to come out. Now I'm going to have to pick these up. Like I, you had me kind of at Honey Badger, right? Like I'm going to be honest where I was like, this sounds like something I would read and just enjoy, right? This is perfect. Um, so, um, so I um, read a lot of urban fantasy and paranormal romance. Um, my reigning favorite though, I think is Sheena McGuire. Mm-hmm. Um, she has the October day series. She writes as Mira Grant and writes really interesting zombie apocalypse stories. Um, but what I like about her is that she does inclusion in a way that makes you realize that this is the way the world works and that we have to pay attention to it as such. Right. So that it's just one of those things where she's great, where she has characters who have, a variety of mental and physical disabilities, right? And that's just part of the way this happens, that she's really good at cultural and um, ethnic differences and that she just doesn't play around about it, right? Um, 
that she's one of the first writers um, who I realized who just handled trans mm. characters in this kind of loving way where it's just like, mm. this is it, right? Like, we don't argue about diversity here mm. in my space, right? Like, this is the way the world is. And it makes me think of Shonda Rhimes sort of commentary about diversity, right? Where the term like bothers her because it's like, no, this is the world. Like, we shouldn't just like claim this in certain ways and um, not in others. So I really like her books. Um, I've mentioned Nalini Singh a number of times. Those are books that I go back to and reread when I'm having like a hard time where I'm like, yeah, I'm just going to dwell in this world with sexy leopard shifters <laughs> and strange psychics. Like it's a lot of fun. Um, and then who else? I'm trying to think of who else I've been reading lately and to prepare for this. Um, Laura Adrian's yeah. Midnight Breed books are yeah. intriguing to me. Um, but I'm not entirely happy with the gender dynamics of them. So it's like a, like a middle of the road recommendation for me where I'm like, you're going to be angry if you have a feminist sensibility or are a feminist. I'm happy to hear you say that books. because I have read, you know, it's, she's big and doing tons of stuff in paranormal. And so I've certainly read them, mm-hmm. but I think I don't, it's not the rereader. And I think that's why. Yeah. yeah. And that brings us to the end of this episode. I want to thank Dr. McMillan Cottom and Dr. Baker for hanging out with me and talking about romance because that was a tremendously fun conversation. I think the part that I enjoyed most, I actually wrote this down in my notes while I was editing, was what Dr. Cottom said that when you build a world from scratch, you have to be deliberate about how there's going to be different kinds of people and you can't rely on the whitewashed history that's in place already. If you would like to find more cool things that they say, there are so many. Okay. You can find Dr. Cottom online at Tressie McPhD on Twitter and at her site, TressieMC.com. You can find Dr. Baker at Dr. Kelly underscore J underscore Baker and on her website, KellyJBaker.com. I will have links to both of those options in the website show notes, along with links to the things that we talked about and all of the books we mentioned, there were many. So I hope you weren't trying to write those down while you were on the treadmill or walking the dog or whatever you're doing while you listen to this podcast. This episode was brought to you by Once a Scoundrel by Mary Jo Putney. For Mary Jo Putney, one of the most acclaimed writers of historical romance comes another beautifully crafted, deeply emotional and impeccably researched novel with a fun dash of adventure, this time set on the high seas. Follow the journey of a disgraced former English Navy captain turned privateer as he attempts to rescue Lady Aurora Lawrence, who is kidnapped by pirates. Together, they undertake a dangerous mission through troubled waters and encounter another kind of danger as attraction burns hot within the close confines of his ship. But even if they endure the perils of the sea and enemy lands, can their love survive a return to England? where the distance between a disgraced captain and an earl's daughter is wider than the ocean. Once a Scoundrel by New York Times bestselling and Rita award-winning author Mary Jo Putney is on sale now wherever books are sold and at kensingtonbooks.com. Today's podcast transcript is sponsored by Last Night with the Earl by Kelly Bowen and brought to life by the brilliant narrator Ashford McNabb. If you like Tessa Dare and Sarah McLean, feminism and heroines who don't wilt under the slightest bit of pressure, you'll enjoy this historical romance. Eli Dawes, the Earl of Rivers, reluctantly returns to England to find his country home in Dover taken over by a finishing school for girls. 
Severely wounded in the Battle of Waterloo, his hopes of maintaining a low profile are thwarted when he literally bumps into Rose Hayward, an old friend who, coincidentally, is now the art teacher at the school. Rose, who has faced her own challenges while Eli has been away, is the only person to force him to see certain truths about himself and his place in the world, and unexpectedly, he does the same for her. And let us not forget, there is some seriously steamy sex. Last Night with the Earl by Kelly Bowen is on sale now, wherever books are sold. Find out more at kellybowen.net and other oral romances, get it, at hachetteaudio.com. Stay tuned to the end of the podcast when I have an audiobook sample of this title performed by Ashford McNabb, who's a brilliant narrator. You should listen to this. It's quite lovely. If you have supported the show with a monthly pledge of any amount, thank you very, very, very much. If you'd like to join the Patreon community, it would be most excellent if you had a look. Visit patreon.com slash smartbitches. Monthly pledges start at $1 a month, and every pledge helps keep the show going, helps me commission transcripts for episodes in the archives, and the Patreon community helps me plan interviews and suggests questions for upcoming guests as well. Are there other ways to support the show? Absolutely. Leave a review wherever or however you listen. Tell a friend, subscribe, whatever works. But thank you so very much for hanging out with me each week. There are many, many podcasts, and I am very grateful that you have chosen this one. So thank you. The music you are listening to is provided by Sassy Outwater. This is Passport Panic by the Pete Bog Fairies. You can find them online at peatbogfairies.com. You can find this album on Amazon and iTunes. And I will have links to all of the options in the show notes at smartbitchestrashybooks.com slash podcast. Coming up next week on Smart Bitches, there's a website to go with the podcast. I just said the URL. I bet you know that. It is there. This week, we have a new covers and cocktails today, Friday, which means a delicious drink recipe from Amanda, this time for Laura Lee's Crossbreed, sponsored by Penguin Random House. Thank you, Penguin Random House. We also have reviews for new and much-anticipated books. There are so many books coming out this week. Holy smoke. Plus, Hide Your Wallet, which will be extra double large because, as I said, so many books out this week. We have Cover Awe, Help a Bitch Out, and of course, books on sale every day. So I hope you will come and hang out with us. I will have links to everything we talked about and all of the books that we mentioned. But now it is time for the bad joke. And don't forget to tune in at the end for the audiobook sample. This week's bad joke is super bad and I love it so much. What does a clock do when it's hungry? What does a clock do when it's hungry? It goes back four seconds. Well, it's time to fall back. I'm going to think of this joke and I will be super amused. <laughs> Thank you to Scruffy AF for this lovely joke. It goes back four seconds. <laughs> uh, any joke about time is great because I have a very, very poor concept of time. But on behalf of Dr. Baker, Dr. Cottom, and myself, thank you so much for hanging out with us. We wish you the very best of reading. Have a great weekend. And don't forget, there's an audiobook sample in just a few minutes. See you next time. And thank you for listening.
When Lady Ophelia Volant smiled, she had a face that could start a war, or at the very least, provoke duels, enthuse poets, and empty hothouses of extravagant bouquets. A face with the sort of mysterious radiance that would have sent Rubens and Botticelli and Titian scrambling for their brushes and paints. The old masters were long in their graves, but Rose Hayward was very much alive and indecently pleased with the image that had emerged on the canvas under her careful brushstrokes. She was almost done, and the sultry, raven-haired, green-eyed goddess who stared back at her from a palette of decadent color was nothing short of breathtaking. Rose gazed at the portrait for a moment longer before she set her brush aside. She narrowed her eyes critically at the work, but even as hard as she was on herself, she knew without a doubt that this was one of her best. A slow grin spread across her face. Is it done? Lady Ophelia asked from where she reclined, up on the dais. She sounded hesitant and hopeful all at once. Yes, Rose arched her back and rubbed her neck, stretching muscles that had tightened across her shoulders. Can I finally see it? Rose looked up at her. I would like nothing more. She moved out from behind the canvas and made her way to the dais. She plucked an embroidered robe from the back of a chair on her way and climbed up to the long settee on the raised platform. Lady Ophelia had sat up and pushed her dark hair back over her shoulders. The self-consciousness that she had worn like a shield when she had first visited weeks ago, nowhere to be seen. Rose handed her the robe and extended her arm. The young woman reached for it and pulled herself slowly to her feet. She shifted slightly to gain her balance and then slid the robe over her naked shoulders before belting it neatly at the waist. Letting Ophelia lead, Rose assisted her down the steps until they were on level ground. Lady Ophelia released her arm and Rose retrieved her crutch from where it had been propped against the chair, passing it to her. They moved forward, Rose matching the speed of her steps to Ophelia's uneven gait until they had almost reached her easel. Close your eyes, Rose instructed. Don't open them until I tell you to. Ophelia gazed at her anxiously. I'm nervous she said suddenly. No, you were nervous when you first got here weeks ago, Rose said lightly. Now, you are spectacular. The young woman smiled shyly, and Rose was again mesmerized by her beauty. Thank you, Ophelia said. Rose shook her head. Truly, there is no need to thank me for doing something that I love to do. The pleasure was all mine. I don't mean the painting, though I am grateful for that. I meant for your kindness, 
she gestured to her crutch. For treating me as a person, and not a deformed cripple. For seeing me as something more. Rose opened her mouth to retort, and then thought better of it. Let me show you how I see you, she said. Ophelia held her gaze for a moment longer, and then nodded. Close your eyes, Rose repeated, and this time, the young woman obeyed. She grasped Ophelia's hand and placed it on her arm, then guided her slowly forward until they stood in front of the canvas. Look, Rose commanded. Ophelia took a deep breath and then slowly opened her eyes. She made a tiny noise in the back of her throat and her fingers tightened around Rose's arm like a vice. The nude woman on the canvas reclined on her side amid a bed of crimson satin. Her skin like the finest ivory against the lush background. Her hair tumbled over her shoulders and across her generous breasts in a glorious curtain of midnight curls. One of her hands rested lightly on the exquisite curve of her hip. Her good leg, slightly bent and creating a shadow beneath the subtle swell of her abdomen. Her twisted, atrophied leg wasn't hidden, but simply rested beneath the smooth lines of the other. A soft smile curved her lips, her emerald gaze focused somewhere just beyond her audience. Sultry, seductive, almost dreamlike as though she was thinking of a lover.